Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, November the 17th. The election's been settled, and American politics remains profoundly unsettled. Division of power. Um, very finely balanced politics between left and right in America. It probably assumes that politics will be paralyzed for the next two years and not much will happen within Congress. And most of the action will probably take place in the Supreme Court. We know all about abortion, but technology might be changed as well radically by the Supreme Court. Um, there's an upcoming case in the Supreme Court in which, at least according to the Brookings Institute, um, the Supreme Court um, will look very critically at social media platform liability. This is uh, in terms of the Supreme Court's take on Section 230, one of the most controversial aspects of Internet legislation. Many people believe that uh, this case may fundamentally change the Internet. It's bound up in a new case, which is about to be heard at the Supreme Court. Gonzalez versus Google. We all know about Google, less about Gonzalez. Uh, some people believe that Section 230 should be addressed in Congress, not as in the Supreme Court, but at least in the short term, it's going to be addressed in the court. Um, it's all bound up in uh, Section 230, which is a, a piece of the Communications Decency Act, which has had a profound impact on the internet. Um, it is indeed the 26 words that created the internet. In the language of my guest today, he has a book out, The 26 Words That Created the Internet, Jeff, Jeff Kosef, uh, which is a book about Section 230. Jeff is joining us from uh, Virginia, from Arlington, Virginia. Jeff, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So, Jeff, before we get into the details of the Google versus Gonzalez case. Explain to our viewers and listeners what exactly Section 230 is and why it's such a huge deal. So what Section 230 basically says is that if someone posts something on the internet that's defamatory or otherwise violates someone's legal rights, that generally the, uh, the person who posted the content can be sued but the platform where they posted it is not going to be liable. So it places the burden and the legal responsibility on the poster rather than the platform where they posted. And it also gives the platform the flexibility to moderate content, to de delete content, to ban users, to allow users on as the platform sees fit. So it's very much a market-based law that basically assumes that the platforms will generally act in the best interests of their community because that's what the market would want. And of course, platforms are a little bit Google, but mostly companies like or platforms like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. Give us the historical context of the Communications Decency Act. What year did it take place? And who were the, the senators pushing both the act and Section 230? So to understand why we have Section 230, you actually have to understand what the problem was that it was trying to address. So um, 
set what section 230 is is it's basically a law that talks about what the liability is of companies or people who distribute someone else's content so uh, Section 230 was passed in 1996, which was really the dawn of the commercial internet. And it was addressed to, uh, it, it was designed to address a specific problem in the First Amendment and the common law, uh, basically of distributor liability as applied to the internet. So for decades, the rule in the United States was that if you're a bookstore or a newsstand or any other company that distributes some content that someone else created, that you're only liable if you know or have reason to know of the defamatory or illegal content that you're distributing. And that worked pretty well for bookstores and newsstands. But then in the early 90s, you started to have these new services uh, like CompuServe and Prodigy that would distribute content electronically to people's homes through really slow dial-up connections. And those services had different business models. So CompuServe was a national service that did very little moderation. Uh, Prodigy wanted to be family friendly. So they actually did a lot more moderation. They had a lot of detailed content policies because they wanted children to be able to use Prodigy without seeing pornography and other objectionable content. So not surprisingly, both CompuServe and Prodigy are sued in the early 1990s for defamation based on content that someone else posted. Uh, CompuServe under this newspaper or newsstand standard gets the lawsuit dismissed because the judge says, you know, you're just like an electronic version of a newsstand or a bookstore. Uh, Prodigy does not have the same success. And what the judge says is that because Prodigy actually does a lot of moderation, it exercises editorial control. And that makes Prodigy more like a newspaper than a newsstand. And a newspaper is liable for everything in its pages. So what these cases combined to mean were that if you are an online service, you actually decrease your liability by taking a hands-off approach to user content. And this made no sense. So what, what, what Section 230 says, and it was passed in 1996 as part of the... Uh, a huge overhaul of the nation's telecommunications laws. It was a very, very quietly passed, got very little attention. And it says that no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. And in English, that basically means that you're, that if you're an online service, a platform, you're not treated as the publisher of someone else's speech. The courts interpreted that very broadly to go beyond the protection that, new, that newsstands received. And it said that even if you're made aware of the content that's defamatory or allegedly defamatory, you still are not liable if you fail to remove it. So it gives the platforms this tremendous amount of flexibility. And it applies not only to Google and Facebook and Twitter, but it applies to Yelp. Glassdoor to community news sites that have bulletin boards where people post, post their own content. So any site, no matter how small, that hosts user content benefits from Section 230. So let's hit, that's brilliant, Jeff. Thank you so much. You're, you're invaluable in, in terms of laying that out in, in so coherently and intelligibly. But let's also historicize it. Let's go back to 1996. In 96, of course, 
There was no Web 2.0. There were no platforms that allowed you or I to post our videos or our music without any technical uh, sophistication. There was no Twitter. There was no Facebook. So the internet back in 96 was, in a sense, like a, a newsstand. We opened websites and which were essentially newspapers on the internet. What changed in 1999 and 2000 was, of course, that Web 2.0 allowed all of us to become publishers. So that's the first, I think, important historical footnote, asterisk to this. And the second one is in 96, no one thought that the internet was that big a deal, did they? My understanding of Section 230 was it was designed to help these small little internet companies that were competing against big media. I mean, in 96, there was no Google. All there was was Amazon, uh, which wasn't even a, 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 a self-publishing platform. So there is um, a, a technological and historical dimension to this clause, isn't there? Yeah, I'd push back a little bit on that. Uh, obviously, it wasn't called Web 2.0 and we didn't have social media in 1996, but um, Prodigy, CompuServe, AOL, which was kind of the upstart challenging them, as well as websites, did allow people to post their own content in 1996. I mean, back in, and, and that was the whole point of why 230 was passed, was because you were starting to allow more and more, and these were, they, they were different. They were not nearly as sophisticated as, as social media is now, but you had bulletin boards, you had chat rooms, you had forums, right. and, they, and they certainly didn't have as many users. I mean, now you have social media companies that have billions of users worldwide, uh, the, but these companies were in the millions. And if there was harmful content, it did really, hurt the person who the content was posted about. So it's obviously it was more text-based. There wasn't there there wasn't video and images at least as easily posted as they are now because we didn't have video cameras on our phone. But uh, we it certainly did anticipate uh, the growth of the internet. And when you look at the history of Section 230, uh, in, in the very little amount that was uh, said about it on the House floor, the members of Congress clearly are talking about the potential for the growth of the Internet. So they did recognize and it was it was written by a Democrat, Ron Wyden, who's now in the Senate and a Republican, Chris Cox, who uh, later chaired the Securities and Exchange. And both Wyden and Cox were sympathetic to this new economy. They saw these digital upstarts as being a good thing for democracy, a good thing for the American economy. Is that fair? They did because uh, Ron Wyden represented Portland, Oregon, and Chris Cox represented Orange County, California. And while they're not, ni neither are the same as Silicon Valley in terms of the presence of tech, they both have a substantial tech presence. So they recognized this bill as a way to promote the tech sector, which they thought could help their districts. So before we get to the controversy about Section 230, could you distinguish between our rights as internet publishers and our rights as, say, telephone users? You talked about AOL. If you and I were on the AOL of the 1990s and we posted defamatory content to each other, um, 
that's not liable in the same way as you and I could be on the phone and be saying some awful things, but no one could sue us for that. Is that fair? Well, if we were just communicating to one another, that would be incredibly difficult to bring a viable defamation uh, claim. You would have to communicate to more people. If I, if I was defaming you in a conversation just to you, that's not going to be defamation. It, it would be if I was defaming you even in a small group chat, that could, I mean, depending on the facts, that could constitute defamation. And what about at a bar? If you, if you and I are standing at a bar and we say something profoundly defamatory and 10 people around us overhears it, um, is that defamatory Can, under the law? Depending on who hears it. I mean, if it causes you sufficient damage and it meets all the other prerequisites under the com common law and the constitution for defamation, which is very high in the United States, but it still is possible. It would just, I mean, there, there have been successful slander cases, which that would be, uh, which is a subset of defamation, but it really would depend on exactly what was said and what harm was done. So this gets to the heart, I think, of, of, the, of the American idea, constitutional idea of democracy, of being free to essentially say whatever we like. Why has it become so controversial? It was passed to promote a new digital economy. It did that. We've had the emergence of very powerful platforms that allow us to publish our own ideas, our own videos, our own audio. This is the kind of platform we're doing exactly what Section 230 enabled. Um, why has it become such a controversial issue? I think it's largely become controversial because the some of the largest tech platforms have grown substantially and they've upset people really across the political spectrum for various reasons. And Section 230 has become synonymous with these platforms that really could never have grown to the size they are right now without Section 230. So there's an idea that, uh, you know, if you could just somehow change Section 230, you could fix whatever you think is wrong with these big platforms. And I think that's a, sometimes that could be the case. But many times that's actually misplaced because changing Section 230 often will not address the problems that people have with the big platforms. Does Section 230 mean that content uh, posted on Twitter or YouTube or Facebook is essentially freer than content published by traditional newspapers or radio stations or television networks? Uh, in terms of free of liability? Well, what I mean freer, freer of legal liability. So if I post something profoundly defamatory on Twitter hmm? or on YouTube, um, I myself are still liable, but Twitter and YouTube aren't. If I post an op-ed in the New York Times, the New York Times can be liable for that. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, if you post a comment on NewYorkTimes.com that's defamatory, the New York Times would not be liable. But if, if the editors of the New York Times in their collective wisdom decided to run my piece, um, they could be sued for defamation if that content was indeed defamatory. Sure. So what about the argument, Jeff, that the Facebooks and the Twitters and the YouTubes of the world, they're profiting massively from this. They're profiting, their business model 
is essentially to allow all of us to become publishers and post whatever we like and they sell advertising around it, why shouldn't they be liable? Well, because they, and, and I mean, Facebook has actually argued that they want to amend Section 230. And I, I think that um, ultimately the argument is that the publishers themselves, which are the people who are writing the content, creating the content are still liable. And that while Section 230 certainly does benefit the large platforms, Ultimately, it creates more opportunities for people to get their ideas and their thoughts out there, because without Section 230, you would have fewer avenues uh, for user content. The platforms would either be much more restrictive or they wouldn't allow uh, user content at all because they don't want to take the risk. And while there are a number of cases that the biggest tech platforms have used Section 230, you also see it much more frequently uh, in sites that are not really what you would consider big tech. So a site like Glassdoor, where people can post reviews of their employers or places where they've interviewed. Glassdoor uses Section 230 quite frequently because, as you might imagine, companies are not happy when, employer, when employees post negative things about them. Yelp uses Section 230 quite a bit because companies don't like it when people post negative reviews. So yeah, I, uh, of course, Facebook and YouTube do benefit from Section 230, but so does any other site that allows user content. And if you get rid of Section 230, what that does is that will foreclose of options for, for people to post content online. And that might be a value judgment that we want to make, but I think that we have to be clear on what the impact will be. Well, let's talk about that impact. The title of your book is The 26 Words That Created the Internet. Had those words not been created, Jeff, then what? Where would we be today? I think the internet would be uh, more of a closed platform or more of a one-way platform, uh, more like traditional media like television and radio and newspapers, where people can possibly still post their own content, but it's much more of a one, one direction. It's not as much uh, social media being built around the user content. It, it's, uh, it, it's services that are built around content that a company creates and is able to really personally ensure that it won't lead to liability. And you probably some people, some people listening, Jeff, and watching might think, well, that wouldn't be such a bad thing. We wouldn't have fake news. We would know who to trust and who to believe. How would you respond to that? Well, I I, I mean I think there there are plenty of large traditional media that are uh, that traffic in quite a bit of uh, fake news that, that you might call it, or misleading news or really uh, blatantly misrepresentative opinions that, uh, that don't benefit from Section 230 because this is content that they're creating. And I mean, part of this and a lot of the concerns about Section 230 ultimately come down to concerns about the First Amendment because fake news, uh, I mean, unless it's defamatory or falls within another narrowly defined category, uh, is not going to be exempt from First Amendment protections. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, about a decade ago specifically said that false speech is not something that is categorically unprotected by the First Amendment. 
And so I think what you're, the point you're raising really illustrates nicely uh, a, a bigger problem with the criticism of Section 230, which is many things that are seen as Section 230 problems, when you dig a little deeper, you see it's actually a problem with how the courts interpret the First Amendment. You're a fan, though, of, of Section 230. Would that be fair? I mean, you're, 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 you're an erudite law professor, um, but you're not a purely objective here. You have a position of your own. Is that fair? Well, I've also testified repeatedly about changes that could be made to Section 230. Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily even say fan. I mean, I acknowledge some of the, the downsides of having this open communication. And it's frankly not as much with the largest platforms as it is with some platforms that are narrowly designed to traffic and harmful content that also get Section 230 protection. Uh, that concerns me much more because, I, I mean, no site is going to be perfect. Uh, there, e even if a site tries to be perfect, it's going to mess up. My site's perfect, Jeff. <laughs> But it, for a site like, uh, I'll even go as far to say Twitter, which has thousands of tweets per second. Uh, this was even before all the massive layoffs. Uh, there was just no way to ensure that everything was going to be perfect. So um, even Elon Musk is not a superhuman editor. Let, let's get to the, the case that may change the internet, may even bring what we think of as the internet to an end. It, it may be, as some people think, an existential challenge to companies like Google. Gonzalez versus Google, it's gonna get heard next, early next year. What's it about, Jeff? Why is it so significant? And do you believe that it, it, it could be the, the Roe versus Wade for the internet? I, I mean, I think there's a small chance that it could be. I think most likely it's, and it's always hazardous to predict how the Supreme Court will rule on anything. But I think given the way this case is styled, I think it very well could be decided pretty narrowly. Uh, it's a case that basically uh, it, it's brought, it's a tragic case that's brought by the family of a college student from California who is studying abroad in Paris and was killed in the ISIS shootings uh, in 2015. Uh, there's a federal law called the Anti-Terrorism Act that allows um, the victims and family members of terrorism to sue, uh, to, to sue even those who uh, contributed to the harm. And so the, the basic premise of this lawsuit is that uh, YouTube, which is part of Google, uh, that it, it allowed, not only allowed ISIS to post content, but it algorithmically targeted it personalized ISIS content to people based on their previous interests. And rather than suing based purely on the ISIS content, which would be Section 230 protected, what the, uh, what, what the family is saying is that they're actually suing based on the targeting. And courts have previously said 230 still applies because ultimately this is holding the site liable for someone else's content. But uh, there have been some judges who have dissented in the appellate courts who have said that they disagree with that. And at least four justices on the Supreme Court agreed this is an important enough case to hear. Now, um, the court could just narrowly interpret Section 230, 
Section 230 based on the facts of this case, which are fairly unique when you look at all of the cases involving Section 230. Most of them don't stem from algorithmic personalization. Uh, or the Supreme Court could take a much broader look and and very much reinterpret Section 230 in a way to perhaps say that once a platform becomes aware of harmful content, it has to remove it. That's at least theoretically something they could do. But it's just really hard to predict how nine very different people who have never ruled on a Section 230 case before will interpret the law. Well, that's why we're talking to you, Jeff. You can figure that stuff out. Yeah, no, I, you can't. Nobody can. Um, I, I, I'd have a lot more money. The, if the politics of Section 230 are intriguing. I mean, Biden, uh, sorry, uh, you know, Klobuchar and, and, and Warren are supposedly against 230. Uh, Biden in 2020 said that he would get rid of 230. Uh, Trump has always been hostile to 230. Whether or not he quite understands it is another issue. Why, why is this one of the few issues that seems to unite an Elizabeth Warren, a Ted Cruz, a Donald Trump, and an Amy Klobuchar? Well, so it unites them to the extent that they say they don't like Section 230. But, and I spend a lot of time talking with members of Congress and their staffers to just give them uh, the history of 230. And when you actually start to talk with them about why, why they don't like 230, it's actually very different. Uh, it's actually fundamentally different visions of the roles that platforms should play. So when you talk with liberals, they tend to think that platforms need to be far more restrictive in the content that they allow. So, uh, you know, they don't like what they call health misinformation. So they want the platforms to, they say, why are they getting 230 protection if they're allowing people to post uh, harmful information that causes people to make bad choices. Uh, the, the problem with that is that a lot of what they're saying they want the platforms to block is First Amendment protected. So the platforms could voluntarily block it, but you can't the government cannot require the platforms to block constitutionally protected speech. When you talk with conservatives who say they don't like 230, they're actually angry that the platforms are already blocking too much content. And they seem to think that we need to use Section 230 as a lever to force the platforms to allow any content as long as it's constitutionally protected. Uh, the problem with that is also the First Amendment, that the First Amendment gives, gives the right to platforms to determine what speech they distribute. So these, again, when I talk about what's a Section 230 problem and what's a First Amendment problem, these are two pretty much diametrically opposed concerns with the First Amendment. But because you're not really going to get a politician to say, we want to change the First Amendment, instead, they're basically trying to use Section 230 as a lever to achieve those goals. There's a huge controversy out here, um, Jeff, as you know about the responsibility, the accountability of the platforms. It's perhaps most manifest at the moment on Twitter where Elon Musk just acquired and he's going to allow some conservatives back on who were thrown off before. Isn't it obvious that these platforms are in their own way publishers? That there is always going to be bias. You know, Twitter has to determine what are we going to allow Trump on 
And if not, why not? And that is the same issue that any publisher has to face. Well, but it's also the same issue that a distributor has to face. And that's what they're classified at the common law. You mean the uh, newsstand versus the newspaper issue? Exactly. I mean, you're, you're not going to have a newsstand or a bookstore. You're not going to force them to carry every person's book. They make choices. I go to some bookstores that still exist because they tend to have better selection. And I, I know that they're making better choices. Um, I would never expect that they would, even though they're making these choices, they might even write little cards um, in front of the book to say why they like this book. I would never think they're taking legal responsibility for, for this book, but uh, they do have the choice. And I, would, I'll, I also would never would think that they're going to be required to carry a book. That would be ridiculous. What about the politics on the Supreme Court that's supposed to be above politics, but of course it isn't? How do you see it working out? Is Roberts going to define everything? How will Thomas and Alito, what's their position on this thing? And then what about the liberals, Sotomayor um, uh, and Kagan? And then, of course, the new conservatives, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh and Barrett. How, how do you expect them all to be thinking at least about this issue? And what are the political implications? Well, the only justice who I could predict with any amount of certainty is Justice Thomas, because he's actually written separately to suggest that Section 230 might be interpreted too broadly. So I think there, that if there's any opinion or dissent that calls for a narrower interpretation of Section 230, it will at least be written or joined by Justice Thomas. Now, Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett tend to be what you might classify as sort of old school conservatives who are believe in free markets and limited business regulations. So they might actually take a different approach than Justice Thomas and the liberal justices. The what about liberal, Alito? Uh, Alito, I, I can't predict Justice Alito. <laughs> but uh, the and I, I would say Roberts is probably in there with Justice Kavanaugh and Barrett. I mean, presumably Roberts will one Roberts would be one of the the Supreme Court justices who would be in favor of narrowing the issue and not not legislating something really dramatic, seismic. I, I think possibly. I, I think he's also generally anti-regulation, so I, that's why I could see him. Possibly, and again, this is all real speculation. I could see him possibly sit calling for basically the continued broad approach of Section 230. Um, and then I, I think uh, the liberal justices, um, they, the three, the three liberal justices, I could see them even joining with Justice Thomas because their concern might be that they don't want to close the courthouse doors to plaintiffs. Strange bedfellows, yeah. Thomas, and the left. Does that is that encouraging, Jeff, from from your point of view as certainly a man who's very much in favour of free speech and free speech in particular on the internet? I, I mean, I I don't think that the political breakdown of the Supreme Court is either encouraging or discouraging. I think we want to we want to look at what the long term impact is going to be, and I think that. Uh, what we don't want to do is take all discretion out of the hands of the platforms, because what often gets missed in this debate is that platforms 
uh, do an incredible amount of moderation already, uh, there's a lot of really awful content that we don't see. And there's a good reason why we don't see it. And it makes the user experience much better to not see it. And what we don't want to do is discourage the platforms from using either automated or human moderation systems. Uh, because as imperfect as they are right now, if we start saying, you know, you're going to become more liable if you start moderating, that gets back to the problem that Prodigy had back in 1996. Uh, and, and that's not really a good place to be. Might economics change all this too? Lots of layoffs in Silicon Valley. Uh, Amazon also just laid off 10,000 people. Google's in the news. One of its um, uh, big investors has, has urged Alphabet, which is the holding company of Google and, and YouTube, to have cost-cutting measures. Um, 10,000 Google employees could be rated as low performers. They get rid of 10,000 people. That might be 10,000 editors at YouTube. Um, how important is economics, do you think, in the long term in, in, in terms of making sense of Section 230? I mean, we need humans to curate. Isn't that the key here? We do. And I don't know what these lay I, I don't know what the breakdown is of these layoffs on moderation. A lot of moderation is actually not done by full time employees of the companies. They hire contractors at other companies to do it. So I don't know what I, I've not seen very much about what the cost cutting is going to do for moderation. I think moderation is actually part of the product of social media platforms. I mean, any platform that says we're just going to stop moderating, that's essentially getting rid of one of your most valuable parts of your product because that, I mean, the, the entire process of moderating is what makes social media usable. So ultimately, when you talk about economics, part of that is being able to distinguish yourself from competitors. Uh, in a couple of hours, doing a show with Heather Ford, an Australian researcher, has just written an interesting book on Wikipedia. Is the Wikipedia model better, Jeff, more efficient in terms of making sure that the community itself can edit? M my sense is that Wikipedia is a more reliable platform than Twitter or Facebook or YouTube. Well, so Wikipedia actually benefits tremendously from Section 230. It's used Section 230 to dismiss a number of cases. And Jimmy Wales, who I, I've moderated a discussion with him, he's the founder of Wikipedia. Um, he has said that Section 230 is what makes Wikipedia possible. So um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there are upsides and downsides. Uh, I mean, Wikipedia has gotten criticism, obviously, but ultimately what that does is it, it what Section 230 does for Wikipedia is it allows it to have crowdsourced articles from people all around the world that get edited from pe by people all around the world. And it's run by a tiny nonprofit that frankly could not exist without Section 230. Yeah, it's funny. And I, you know, the, the Communications Decency Act and Section 230 are so controversial, but I do trust Wikipedia. This is all about having a more trustworthy media. Oddly mm -hmm. enough, Wikipedia doesn't pay its contributors, and they're all anonymous. I know you have some strong feelings on anonymity. You just, uh, your last book was called The United States of Anonymous, How the First Amendment Shaped Online Speech. Is there a way of trying to get the platforms who are still extremely profitable to perhaps distribute some of their profits to other platforms like Wikipedia? Um, 
So, I mean, there are proposals, not as much for Wikipedia, but for there's a proposal in Congress for uh, the for news sites uh, to 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 share in the revenues from advertising. That's not really as much of a Section 230 issue as it is a competition issue. Right. And, and the Europeans, I mean, we haven't even talked, I, I don't want to spend too much talking about the Europeans, but how does this impact on how the platforms are seen in Europe, given that France or Britain or Germany doesn't have a Section 230? Well, so it's easier to get content removed in Europe, and Europe also has the right to be forgotten, which is really kind of anathema to the United States. Uh, and again, there are upsides and downsides to that. I mean, if you're if you were arrested 20 years ago, and there's an old news article, and when someone searches your name on Google, your arrest is the first thing that comes up. There's a good reason to say, you know, I, I think that this is something that should be removed, de-indexed from my search results. Uh, if you're an employer who's searching for that person to consider hiring them, then you might say, you know, I would like to be able to see that. So, I mean, there, there are always trade-offs. Jeff, uh, to end, you, you, you noted um, at the beginning that you didn't think Section 230 was perfect and that there were reforms that would make it better. What would you like to see come out? Maybe not so much of Gonzalez versus Google, which, as you suggest, might be determined quite narrowly. But how could Section 230 be improved to satisfy critics both on the left and on the right? So there is a there, there have been some court cases that have, have said, and this goes back to what I said at the beginning, that if you write something defamatory about me on Facebook, I no, I would never write anything defamatory yeah. about you. Just, just, just you, hypothetically. Seem, you, you seem like an angel. <laughs> so hypothetically, you know any dark, dirty secrets? Um, I, I would be able to sue you. And if I sued you and it went to court and a court found that it was defamatory, it, it was not constitutionally protected. So that's a really high bar. But if I was able to demonstrate that in court, I'd be able to get money from you. But what I can't do, what the courts have ruled, is that even in that case, in a lawsuit between the poster and the subject, the subject cannot get a court order to have that material removed from the website where it was posted because of Section 230. I don't think that's correct. I think that if something is, is adjudicated to be defamatory or otherwise illegal, the platform should not have protection to keep it up the platform should be required to take it down because in these cases, I'm concerned about the worst case scenarios where people have their lives ruined because there's this really awful defamatory stuff that's written about them. They should have an avenue to get that taken down after an adjudication. Wise words from the man who wrote the 26 words that created the internet, Jeff Kossif. Thank you, Jeff, so much for a very helpful and um, I think coherent introduction to the complexities of 230. We'll have to have you back on the show um, once Gonzalez versus Google is heard. Uh, what else are you reading? I hope you just don't read about Section 230, Jeff. You're, you, you're a broader reader than that, aren't you? I don't know. I, I, I try to read non-legal books as much as possible. I'm rereading for probably the 10th time, 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. 
Uh, I'm also a big fan of Tudor history, so I'm reading a biography of Anne of Cleves, which um, is definitely eye-opening, and I'm learning a lot about... Uh, one of the lesser known of, of Henry VIII's queens, but uh, actually quite a powerful one, right? A power, a very wealthy one, because uh, b because he uh, basically claimed that she did not look like the portrait that he had received. Um, and uh, does that mean, Jeff, we should be careful marrying wealthy women? I, I, I mean, I, I think that it tells uh, lessons about profile pictures and all sorts of things on dating sites, but. <laughs> But she could have, or Henry VIII probably would have sued Facebook or Twitter had uh, exactly. there been an internet around at the time. Exactly. <laughs>